This is very exciting, Nancy. Our first recording on Zoom. I know. In different places. Our producer down on a pre-Christmas holiday in Whitstable. I know, we fully joined the 21st century. <laughs> finally, finally. Yeah. And um, we're doing it partly because we thought we'd just do uh, a quick podcast before Christmas, a quick episode of the As the Actress Said to the Critic, with me, the critic, Sarah Crompton. And with me, the actress, Nancy Carroll. Um, to talk about what we'll be doing over Christmas. Um, you'll be working, actually. That's yeah. <laughs> but, um, My dream Christmas is always that you just absolutely stop and watch films. Um, and last Christmas, I, um, I had a dramatically had an operation on Christmas Eve, which actually forced me to do nothing except lie on a sofa, eat chocolates and watch films all Christmas. And honestly, it was the best Christmas <laughs> ever. <laughs> what's your dream christmas when you're not on stage um i don't know really actually we were talking about this at work yesterday i'm not sure what it is it's different every time i suppose because we're different year on year and what you know and what that sort of if your inner pace is quite sort of frenetic it is glorious to i think sitting in a big heap on the sofa with everybody fed and everybody happy. Because when the kids are tiny, there's always that thing of, you know, there is the period of having to build the toys and make sure the toys work and then everybody's happy and all that sort of stuff. Now we've got past that now, but it's, it's it, I think just being together really and good chats and, and it's like any party, isn't it? There's always a sort of lull when everybody's fed and people have settled and then you get to talk. So yeah. I, I like the talking and I like the, the, the heap of family on the sofa watching stuff. That's I like that watching stuff and yeah. you always watch stuff I mean you know I um there are lots of things I want to watch this Christmas but there are always certain films that I do always end up watching and I thought that would be quite interesting to talk about about why you watch certain films over and over again yeah and why Christmas is the sort of perfect moment to do that one of mine um, is the sound of music, which I always think I won't watch it again. I've seen this film. Oh, <laughs> I can watch it every day. I love that movie. Why do you? Why, how do you love it? Why do you love it so much? Well, I think I love it because um, I don't know really. I suppose I love it because I love Julie Andrews. I think Julie Andrews was a terribly has always been a really um, significant figure for me, and I okay. think it's utterly wonderful. And then that voice singing those songs. It's just a joy. Yeah. Um, and I did meet, I'm going to tell, I did meet Julie Andrews once, which was one of my best moments. Okay. But she came to London for an anniversary of Mary Poppins. So, I mean, what's fascinating about Andrews, I think, is she's absolutely not what you think. She's right. got an extraordinary career as a child star where she's on the stage of um, Variety Hall and so on, singing, supporting the whole family. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and yeah, she's she's a real sort of she's a real trooper, and she's got quite you know, quite a dysfunctional family. Um, but her you know she supports them through her talent. Then she gets a big break, goes to Broadway, does My Fair Lady, but doesn't get the movie, and doesn't get the movie Heartbroken, all the rest of it. Um, and then she gets instead these two films, Mary Poppins, and. Sound of Music, 1964-1965, makes them both just after giving birth. So all the time on Mary Poppins, she's doing these dance routines while kind of breastfeeding and all the rest of it. Amazing. Um, Sound of Music does almost immediately after. And I think, I so I think 
that sort of contrast in her character that she yes. seems so kind of gentle and lovely and I'm it is what's fascinating about her that she has got that steel behind and when I met her it was exactly like that I met her at the Dorchester right it was utterly lovely I mean she was one of the nicest people I've ever ever met she looked like you wanted her to look she was this kind of um very welcoming quite quite starry you know beautiful flowers in the room macaroons on the table you know everything very very beautiful exactly like an old style Hollywood star but you know poured the tea herself and was very 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 friendly and we talked a lot about musicals and stuff and she was just wonderful but you could see when I was asking questions that she didn't want to answer you just saw that kind of absolute steel behind yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, her smile and not not in a horrid way, but just you very know the clear. top. Yeah, very very clear. Yeah, and I admire and love her enormously, and I I think the reason I love the film is it's got something of the same quality. You think it's all saccharine, you yeah. think it's all going up the Alps and singing beautiful songs, but of course it's got this. It's got two incredibly difficult, complicated stories going on. Yeah. So it's got the, the story of a woman who thinks she has a vacation, doesn't have a vacation, and falls in love with a man who is essentially unsuitable for her. Right. I think that's the interesting thing about that love story. All the time he's trying to uh, marry um, Elena Powell's um, countess, but actually, she, you know, because he knows she's the right social class, she knows that he'll she'll support him, and Maria is not the right wife. No, no. That kind of very, very tangled love story with her feeling she needs to devote her life to God in any case. And I love that. Yeah, yeah. So we've got The Rise of the Nazis, which is documented with remarkable clarity and yeah. chill. I mean, you know, the way that film gets darker and darker and darker. Yeah. Astonishing, I think. Yeah. So it really is a great film. I love it. I mean, and but also I think musical films are very, very interesting because sometimes if you're lucky, you'll get one or two that you remember or you might love the film but don't really remember the music. What's rare is when you can, you know, which is why they have those Sound of Music sing-along performances, you know, across the country. Every single film is brilliant. Uh, every single uh, song, rather, is brilliant and completely memorable. And I, I, I did read an interview. I've always been slightly obsessed with Christopher Plummer, and um, <laughs> and I and and he was apparently desperate to sing, right. and had to sort of audition for them, and was very heartbroken. I mean, possibly momentarily heartbroken uh, when they said actually he couldn't. Yes, because she, I mean, I must commend to everybody Julie Andrews's autobiographies because they are riveting about her oh, life. Oh, really? Okay. They're written in that kind of, she's very nice about everybody. But yeah, yeah. She, they, they, they're fascinating books. And she says that in when they were all in Salzburg filming, he used to be, she was at home with the baby and her first husband. He was out in the hotel bars playing the piano at night because he trained, which according to her as a classical musician which I oh, wow. and so that would have made him desperate yeah to, yeah yeah really, really the other thing is that when they did the wedding scene and um she says this in the book and all the congregations sing Edelweiss yeah 
people making a film had this kind of mental block where they thought that the congregation were all extras from the Salzburg area would know Edelweiss because it was traditional Austrian song. But it isn't a traditional Austrian song. It's a song that Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote for the show. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> they, had to, they had to send them all off for training, singing sessions very quickly <laughs> before they shot the film. <laughs> I love the idea of an entire church going, ah, <laughs> no, we don't know the song. It was just very good. I always use that, I mean, by the by, but um, this song, uh, what will this day be like, I wonder. I always used to do it on the way to auditions. Like I was having my own soundtracks of getting off the bus. <laughs> what will the future hold? doesn't quite work with self-tapes, but it just, <laughs> but I just love it. And it's, and I think it's like, you know, when when lyrics and, and scores come together and and, and just somehow tell a story so clearly that it resounds timelessly. And I think all of the songs from that film seem to do that. They absolutely capture this young, slightly anarchic heart that that doesn't fit in a convent. And and then the, the frustrations of this this man who's got six kids and it's a it's a brilliant story and then the fact that it's based on a true story and the real von Trapps and who I don't think escaped over the Alps but there was no, some they, they they come out a, a different way they do escape but yes it's not it's not the same uh, yeah route. um yeah and I think that that's true it is you know there is a song for every mood in the show and um it's also I think a film that is really better, you know, in, in light of our behind the curtain idea that it's better than it usually is on stage. It's good on stage, you know, it's yeah. still songs and it's wonderful. But the film somehow, because it was filmed in the right places and because I think of the the chemistry between everybody in it. Yes, yes. It does work utterly brilliantly on film yes. and um, yeah. I, I do love it. And the other thing I do love is that helicopter shot, you know, the one that the start, which they filmed right at the end. Yes. Another brilliant story. They kept knocking her over, didn't they? They kept knocking her over because they would get that shot that the, the, the guy was hanging out of the helicopter and he would get the shot, but as the helicopter zoomed away, she got caught in the town flat and she got, <laughs> she got crossed. Yeah. <laughs> So um, when you watch it and that beautiful shot, you have to remember that Julie Andrews was stomping off. Going, yeah. Ah, the other thing, growing up, I always really loved those play clothes. You know, when she, she ripped up all the curtains and made them all play clothes. No, it is true. Those play clothes. I wanted play clothes. We never had play clothes. Made no, but they were also really cool. And I just love the idea that, you know, it's very... Uh, Quaint, I suppose, but the idea of having six kids all in matching curtain <laughs> I just must really enjoy. They also practice cycling. That's my other incident. That's my other fact that in order to cycle along in time to do re mi, they actually oh, yeah. practice doing that. It's a choreographed cycle, a rare thing. That, how do you, did she tell you that? It, you, no, yes, she, when she says it in the Bible. Oh, is it? Okay, okay. She's brilliant. It's, it's a brilliant book. So I commend it. it's called uh, the first one is called um, Homework, which is her initial one. And the second one is called Home, where she's in in Hollywood. Fascinating. Okay. Fascinating is that a good link into my first recommendation of Home Alone? Oh, it's very clever. A very good link. Very clever. Uh, which is on Channel 4 Christmas Day. 
Um, at half past five. This is the film that we watch pretty much every year and the kids grew up watching. I think we also had a, um, the kids were obsessed with Laurel and Hardy growing up. And I think there is, there's so much of that sort of, you know, that, that Home Alone owes to those sort of old um, slapstick comedies. I mean, that's what's so beautiful about it with Macaulay Culkin. And, and I think quite a few of them are on over Christmas because I can't remember how many there were in the end, maybe four. Well, yeah. Um, but I don't have any interesting stories about it, just that that's the one, that's a film that we keep going back to. And you just sort of think, and it's, you know, there's something about it that is, uh, I don't know, culturally not resonant or whatever it is and you think oh if I'm going to sit down and watch a movie you know it should have some kind of gravitas it has no gravitas it's just brilliant slapstick comedy performed fantastically um and that's one that we always return to does Home Alone sort of stand up do you feel I think because it's aimed at kids it was never gonna veer too far into an area that might you know um become tricky at any other point it's well the whole thing is the whole thing is based on a child being left by mistake in in an entirely different city to that of his family so that in itself could be quite triggering and awful (laughs) if you've ever been abandoned in a supermarket or forgotten at any point so that should be the warning like there are abandonment issue (laughs) trigger you know uh, dangers but if you accept that it's a crazy comedy in which a child gets left in an entirely foreign city to that of his family, um, and then how he sort of survives aged eight and then takes on two burglars and ends up succeeding in defending his family home to great effect. And then his mother suddenly realises at some point in the journey that she's forgotten Kevin and... Um, and goes to you know, and then travels back on Christmas Day with great difficulty to go and fetch her child. So you know the premise is really quite upsetting as a parent. You're like, why would? How could you ever possibly forget your child? That's just insane. That length so of you time. accept all of that, and you accept the fact that the the child is then in great danger because two sort of immoral thieves try to break into the house and take on the child. You know, all of that is also not great. But then if if all of that is accepted, then it's a great physical, hilarious. Oh, well, OK, so I have never seen Home Alone. So this is my oh, great wow. OK. Podcast. So um, I was like, there was trouble around when it came out, wasn't there? Because people said it was, um, I think people worried about the premise of it. I can't quite remember, but okay. I remember seeing um, on a paper and sort of having to do stories about why Home Alone will corrupt our youth. So it must have had something in it that made people worry. Before, oh, I missed all of that. Before it became a classic. Um, and, uh, or maybe I've muddled it up with another film, but I've certainly never seen it. And so now I will watch it. That's quite But it's interesting, all these things that you watch at very formative times of your life and, and uh, you know, that maybe, you know, not bright enough to pick up on that initially. It's like, I remember introducing a friend to The Princess Bride which we've always watched again and again. And he said, I really struggle with the gender politics of the fact there's this woman waiting to be rescued. And, you know, and you sort of think, 
Oh, yes. Of course, I totally missed that. I was just sort of, you know. Well, I totally miss it. And you, it's looking at it through different sort of perspectives, isn't it? And um, I, I think that isn't, I love Princess Bride. I mean, Princess yeah. Bride, I very often watch Christmas. And yeah. I think it is an amazing film. And you're right, when it came out, it just seemed like a funny, very funny send up of yeah. those kind of traditional fairy tales. Traditional fairy tales, heroine rescue movies. Now with our different hats on, you see it slightly differently. And I, I think that, you know, we, we've talked in previous episodes about the way that culture shifts down time. Yes. Actually, my second choice, which is Die Hard, which came right. out um in 1998, is wow. a similarly um culturally shifting film i think yeah because it is i know it is because it did two well, it did about three things but it certainly shifted the idea of what an action hero looked like and right. it turned bruce willis who i'd always had a sort of vague crush on because yeah. he was in this tv series called moonlight oh yeah i remember moonlight yeah yeah very good i adored with sybil shepherd where he was a wisecracking detective yeah. and, and you know, they had this honor off love affair and it was yeah, all amazing very smart ass and smirky and i adored it i mean I, yeah, I do too. and and he wasn't therefore obvious casting to come in as an action hero so they the first two people they approached were well the very first person they approached was uh bizarrely frank sinatra who was 70 because he'd play the bruce willis part Yes, because he'd played, this is my really weird fact, he'd played that character, the detective. Right. In a, in, it, it, it's, it's based on a novel in which he played the character in a film called The Detective. And there was a weird contractual glitch, which meant if they adapted the sequel to The Detective, which they did to make Die Hard, then they had to offer Frank Sinatra the part. And he very wisely at 70 said, I'm a bit old for this. And, um, but they then went through all the Hollywood action heroes. Right. So Schwarzenegger and Stallone, and they all turned it down. So Willis comes in from left field and sort of changes the image of the action hero because he keeps that kind of, I mean, that's why I love Die Hard. He keeps the kind of wisecracking, sort of slightly smart-ass persona. Yeah, yeah. And yet he's also a, a, a physical hero. And he's also quite vulnerable. I mean, that's the other yeah. thing that's really appealing. So yeah. I mean, the first film, um, that he just, he, you know, he, he might fail. There's a, sen there's a sense of genuinely that he is outmatched and... Um, improvising and not really this figure who's going to save the world and yeah. I think so I, I think that's one reason Die Hard stands up well that and also you've got Alan Rickman being wow. in his first sort of baddie part really yeah just, yeah but and also I think because the sometimes when the action heroes are after the loot or the glory or the whatever but actually because Bruce Willis is trying to save his marriage which yeah. again, it, it, you know, it, it gives it weight and and no, he's brilliant. He's absolutely yeah. brilliant. It, it, the, the other thing that I was going to mention was Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is quite right. interesting yes. because again, what Paul Freeman does in Raiders of the Lost Ark, who plays a Belgian um, archaeologist who's sort of been wooed by the Nazis to get his hands on the uh, the Ark. I mean, not only 
is he very very beautiful but he's he's not that we're objectifying at all but but uh, uh, the um again it's a baddie with vulnerability it's a baddie who's sort of not quite in control that he's 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 just as lost as indiana jones played by harrison ford um and the only the only story there's a great story but the you know the amazing have you seen uh raiders of the lost ark yes, yes, okay, yeah. so of the lost ark is on over christmas on boxing day channel four at 6 50 apparently um and the scene where the guy comes out with all his swords and and then he just looks at him and uh shoots him yeah very famous scene yeah apparently I think I've got this right. Harrison Ford was supposed to do a big blah, 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 blah thing with him, but had a tummy bug <laughs> and didn't have any energy. Literally was ju could just about stand up because he he'd been up all night. So that's where that came from. He was just going to let the guy. So the guy was doing the blah, 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 ninja style thing. And he just shoots him because that's literally physically all he was capable of on that day of shooting. But actually, it's now iconic. It's a brilliant moment. But I loved the fact that, I mean, it's an interesting film to watch now. We're talking about sort of how prism shift in terms of culturally and where we are in time. But to watch a film about an occupied country and to have all those different sort of components. You've got, you, you know, you've got the people who are digging for the Nazis. You've got the archaeologists have moved in who are working for the Nazis. And then you've got the sort of Harrison Ford troop. And they're all just trying to survive, you yeah. know. And, and no one's not, no one's really sure about where those boundaries are. And nobody's safe. And that's what's so great about that scene with them. Um, oh God, I'm going to get this wrong now. Um, oh, I always had such a girl crush on her. The one who plays the the love interest. Um, hang on, Boxing Day. I have my radio times. Hang on, Boxing Day. Channel Four. Karen Allen, who Karen plays Allen. Marion. Oh, um, yes. I like, yes. Who's just brilliant. Again, you know, she's not, she's not a pushover. She's not like, oh, save me, save me. When he, when he goes to get her, because she's the, the daughter of his sort of great mentor, you know, she's out drinking um, a Mongolian Hulk, you know, and she's, and, and, and that's a brilliant scene, you know, she's damaged and sexy and bright and, They've got this history, and it's a really brilliant script. It was an early Spielberg, wasn't it? Spielberg. I do think one of the really... Um, so my other sort of thinking about what makes you watch classic films at Christmas, yeah. one of the things that struck me is it, they're very often held... They're, they're very often ensemble pieces. They yeah, might yeah. be held by a central charismatic performance, yeah. but very often a lot of very good actors doing a turn. So there is something... Or, or giving up, you know, doing a yeah. turn. I was thinking about Murder on the Orient Express, which I right. also watched last Christmas with Albert Finney, where the actors are very definitely doing a turn, you know, including Sir John Yeelgood. Yeah. But um, these, they're, they're ensemble pieces, you know, Sound of Music's an ensemble piece, Home yeah. Alone, that, they've, Culkin's there, everybody's really good in it. Um, Die Hard definitely wouldn't be anything without Rickman. I think that... Yeah really is uh, um it, you know it's no wonder it sort of made a sort of star on film of Rickman yeah because that that character is so rich and so 
charismatic and it's it's really interesting and I think sort of almost started the tradition of always cast a Brit as a baddie I mean you know so you, and in fact Paul Freeman is is the same you know you yeah. bring in a Brit and say be evil and <laughs> it seems to yeah. work in um, Hollywood films and I think that kind of tension that you, you build up in the ensemble is is often brilliant or equally which goes into your next choice with two star performances because your next choice is uh well is it planes trains and automobiles it is Nancy. Yeah, and you're starting for 10 yeah which is um uh steve martin and john candy this is on channel 4 friday the 29th it's 325 i seem to be quite channel 4 heavy that's all right but, um, um, I haven't looked at where mine are on. I know where mine are on. <laughs> so, okay, sorry, I'm a bit, I'm being a bit geeky. But um, it's good. But, good but again, plane trains and automobiles. It's the physical comedy thing that that certainly from from our family, we just always go back to the physical comedy stuff. But yeah. again, vulnerability. It's that thing, isn't it? And it's like, you know, they they. I think, I mean, I, I would watch Steve Martin do anything and John Candy do anything. And in fact, John Candy in um, Uncle Buck. Oh, yes. Caddy, Caddy, not Candy. Uh, yeah. um, Uncle Buck is another one that we come to, but I haven't seen it uh, in the in the Radio Times. But Yeah, go on. No, go on, you say. No, I was just going to say, the, the other thing about players, trains and automobiles is it is exactly how you feel. Well, it's exactly how you feel most of the time, but it's certainly how you feel at Christmas, that kind of yeah. terrible sense of trying to get somewhere against the clock where everything's going wrong. Yeah, and if yeah. you find people you don't necessarily like or want to be with, it's got an absolute um, sort of, uh, yeah, essential Christmas truth in it. And then, of course, you know, it all changes. Yeah. It's warm. It's John's best, I think, you know, as director and writer. I just think it's he was such a dominant figure in that period, John Hughes, of making movies. And I he is so great. And those yeah. performances, I mean, just Martin, well, both of them are just incredible, aren't they? Yeah. And it's sort of and I I never expected uh the story of the wife at the end. Yeah. Of John Caddy's wife. Yeah. It, it was just sort of amazing. And those movies that you watch, a bit like I, I was thinking of other Bruce Willis performances, like in Sixth Sense, that was a very unexpected Bruce Willis performance. And uh, But um, where you watch something and then you want to watch it again immediately to, to see where the clues were. Yeah. And But it's just very, very funny. I mean, we always, I was sort of, I was saying to you before about, those aren't pillows! <laughs> where they end up in bed together is a sort of family favourite line that and um, you know the, the Princess Bride hello my name is Anigo Mantoya because they, everybody repeats at various points over Christmas um, but, but it's, it's, also, it's also that kind of glorious odd couple quality that yes, I yes exactly um, it's <laughs> now I've got a cup of tea um, I, feel, I always think it's um, um you know what what gets me about it it's like the apart uh not the apartment um well like the old couple with john yeah, lemon yeah. Uh, jack lemon and walter matter yeah that, you know you have a slob and a fastidious man together and um growing up with a fastidious mother i think i've always loved those things where which sets one man's kind of neatness and prettiness and tidiness again somebody that you really wouldn't necessarily want to be in the same room as and john can yeah. 
fills that yeah. kind of quality and that that idea that you can in fact um overcome these insuperable barriers of um being together and uh being with someone you really don't want to be with and yet finding a deeper meaning i think is i, I always love that and and i yeah. think again it makes it's kind of got the warm glow of emotion that um it, it is so appealing i think yes well that well, that's what he john caddy does again in uncle buck you you think that he's completely useless and he's you know and that you 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 start the movie thinking or believing the the hype of that his brother and uh, wife have which is uh you know that he's a, he's a, he's fallen off track he's 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 a useless family member you know he wouldn't his, the kids wouldn't be safe in his care and whatever and of course what happens is um he ends up bringing the family back together again and and getting the you know wooing the daughter back into the into the family and saving her from being uh, abused by the the boyfriend and 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 he's great you know and that you, you have the the girlfriend oh god i can't remember the name that brilliant actress that plays uncle buck's girlfriend in uncle buck who did loads of movies at that time with a slightly sort of high voice no, she had this sort of anyway, gone off piece. Uh, but uh, as you say, the sort of anomalies and you plays with our assumptions about people, and then you hold them up against people who are seemingly in control, seemingly on top of it, seemingly have their life together, and then you realize that they can, that they ultimately need each other to move forward into a better place, and that so it's a very human story. She's John Louisa Kelly. Is that her name? Could John. be. We just done a little bit of research in the last three seconds. <laughs> Very clever. <laughs> uh, might be right, might be wrong. Yeah, yeah. But it's that you know, it is that the, the kind of great. Um, it is the emotional touch, isn't it? The emotional yeah, yeah. touch in the Christmas movies, and it, it's interesting. My husband Ikro, my husband, watches an awful lot of Christmas movies because right. he doesn't really like um, films that are. Um, sad causes <laughs> right, okay. some problems but a lot of them now are quite um carefully manipulated to be quite saccharine you I mean I feel when I watch them with him that I could write a Christmas movie you know you have a something that takes you apart then something that brings you back together at Christmas essentially yeah but Which does that lead carefully into your next uh, offer well you might do I was I, <laughs> I think the ones we've talked about all do that much more kind of organically. Uh, you yeah. know, you know, Sound of Music, um, Home Alone, certainly Planes, Trains and Automobiles, um, Die Hard. They've got an emotional thing underneath, but they're not kind of manipulating it quite so obviously. Right. And that would certainly be true, yes, of my other choice, which is yeah. Paddington 2, which um, is Paddington 2 seems to me to be almost a perfect film. I try to find fault with it, but I, I can't. I mean, I, it's a rare example, I think, of where the sequel is better than the first movie. The first movie is perfectly nice. And I think, you know, Michael Bond, I grew up with Paddington, I love the yeah. books, but he he waited for them to come to screen until he got somebody who, who really, really understood them. And I think Paul King, the director, uh, a writer really understands the Paddington books and understands the the charm of this outsider bear. <laughs> yeah, is, yeah. 
let us not forget, an immigrant and who is uh, who comes to Britain and values its uh, qualities. I mean, there is actually kind of a, quite a, a strong, um, serious quality to Paddington becoming a national hero. People do understand that this is a vulnerable person who mm -hmm. comes to the world. But Paddington too is just sort of a fantasia of, uh, to me, a brilliance that gets that emotional kind of quality, mm -hmm. but doesn't play on it. It's actually got a sort of, you know, separate plot about Paddington's desire to buy this book for his auntie, being foiled by a dastardly um, actor, which is what yeah. I was talking about. And um, sort of slight spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Paddington, but Hugh Grant is... Um, is not necessarily what he sees. And yes. what's wonderful about Paddington too, uh, the design is astonishing. All that, my favorite bit is where, you know, Paddington accidentally washes all the prisoners' clothes. Oh um, yeah, <laughs> the red sock. The red sock, <laughs> so they're genius. all- Genius, absolute genius. Absolute genius. And so, you know, that whole idea of suddenly the color tones all changing to paint. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the other thing that does make uh, Paddington too brilliant, again, is a charismatic baddie performance from Grant, who's yeah, yeah, just astonishingly good in it. Yeah, and Brian Gleeson to a certain extent, but not... Yes, yes. Well, they're all good. I mean, again, brilliant ensemble, Hugh Bonville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually holds it, Sally Hawkins, Julie Walters. I mean, it's an amazing ensemble cast. Yeah, yeah. Members. But it was the first time that Grant, who, you know, is a feature of numerous Christmas movies, from Bridget Jones's Diary to um, Love Actually, had kind of sent up his glamour persona. Yes. And I think there's such sort of pleasure in that, you know. He sort of started off on a new character type trajectory now, hasn't he? Almost because of that film. Yes. But it's, it, it's very, very funny. Yeah, very and funny. Slightly too close to the bone. <laughs> As an actor, because you're like, oh, is that what we're like? But, but it is, but it's brilliant and and absolutely. Uh, is it who is it? Simon? Hello, hello. Simon Barnaby. Is it who writes Ghosts? Yes. And the horrible histories lot who's written it. The Paul King with Simon Barnaby. So we were both right. Oh, okay, cool. Credited in the book by Michael Bond, and then there are other people, but yeah, so those are the co-writers. Yes, and he's got, you're right, Simon Farnaby has got that brilliant sort of light touch of yeah. um, emotion again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's it, a bit what's so lovely again, you know, this it's detail, isn't it? So you've got the sort of Jessica Haynes, Ben Miller couple on the street, and you've got the Peter Capaldi character on the street. And so it sets up, it, as you say, it's an ensemble piece again. And, and but it, it it creates this very real world in which, and the Jim Broad, Broadbent character, in which the effect of Paddington, you know, as, as a bear, as an immigrant, as other, actually his pure kindness, and curiosity and light, it affects his surroundings. You know, he turns up and goes, oh my God, it's a bear, let's get rid of the bear. And then everybody gets to know the bear and realizes actually the bear is what they need. You know, as a, which as a metaphor for, you know, celebrating immigrant culture, it, it's nothing more perfect.
and and a mix yeah mixed culture and also it's Ben Whishaw who I've failed to mention yeah. Yeah. Perfect voice of Paddington, you know, kind, benign, slightly, yeah. slightly troubled, slightly bothered, you know. Yeah, people. yeah. Uh, and he's, it, it, it's an amazing vocal performance because you absolutely believe in that character from that voice. And yeah, it's, it's I, charming is an overused word, but it is charming and it's also deeply sophisticated as well, I think. So, yeah, Paddington yeah. is definitely going to sit down with a piece of beautifully designed I think wonderfully designed I mean I think it, you know it's interesting because my brother's an art director in films and it's always interesting this sort of tightrope of of set design in movies that you know when they when they allow you know there are certain sort of signifiers aren't there that to an audience that when things are slightly the colors are slightly um turned up you know that it's this isn't necessarily the real world. It looks like the real world, but we 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 something. It, there's a heightened quality, but it's very subtle. Very subtle. It's very subtle and and utterly beautiful, yeah. and just things like, you know, the shop that he goes into to buy the book, and the house with that amazing mural up the stairs, and you know, and then the prison and the you know the, that beautiful set where they're all making marmalade together, all the prisoners. You know, it's it's that that in itself. They're things of beauty. Just the set, let alone the story and the acting and everything else. I loved it for all of that. And then, of course, the um, in the sort of uh, actor's cave where he keeps all his old costumes and plans his attack. Yeah. You know, it's a bit it's a sort of a uh, bit of the Tower of London about it. Well, there's in your loft, Nancy. Have you got cave? No, no, nothing so interesting. I'm afraid <laughs> it's all in my head. <laughs> um, I've got one an, an unexpected um, yes. trying to um, which I would love to be a, a, a Christmas traditional film which is Hidden Figures ah uh, yes with uh, Octavia Spencer which is about the uh, African American women who worked for NASA these extraordinary mathematicians who ended up allowing um, uh it was 1969, was it? It was landing on the moon? Yes. So that was very... double check. No, it was 1969. 1969, Kevin Costner plays the um, uh, very important NASA bloke overseeing it all and not quite making it work and then and then happens upon these women and, and the Octavia Spencer character who... It was only very, very recently the NASA acknowledged that really their work was instrumental in um and then setting up the massive computer that that was was there um that was able to achieve those early algorithms that allowed them to calculate the mathematics fast enough for them to arrive safely back into onto earth isn't it was to do with taking off and, and re-entering. Yeah, no, well, yes, it's basically it's basically the algorithms that enable space flight isn't it that they work yeah, yeah. Of how it how it works and and there's kind of one of those brilliant scenes where she notices a mistake in the calculations, isn't it? Yeah, has to. Um, I I thought it was the most um, wonderful um, story, um, and and it, it's really interesting that film because it's it's an example of why um, when people say, you know, everybody makes too much fuss about. Um, 
ch changing the script about yeah. more women's stories, more stories of uh, black Americans, more stories of uh, difference. In fact, that film is an absolute vindication of why telling different stories gives you um, so sort of a much richer culture because it is it's a wonderful film. I mean, it sits alongside all the great moonshot stories like um, Apollo 13 and all of those. Yeah. And it has the light on three extraordinary women who history completely sort of I don't know, forgotten, ignored, wiped out. I mean, they're, yeah, yeah. they're so inspirational because yeah. they're they're fighting against so much. You know, they're yeah, winning yeah. decisions, which is hard enough, as you know, to persuade people that women are good at math, despite the fact that you know, down history, women have been brilliant mathematicians. Yeah, um, there's, a, lo there's a lovely, a enriching um, quality to them, I think. Yeah, but but beautifully played and quite. You know, there's the, there's the there's the racial politics and oppression within that story, but also the gender politics and oppression within that story. And then even within the women who were working there, you know, there's that. You know, I think we've mentioned it before. There's a there's that thing that we've never has never really been resolved. The tension that exists between women when when a woman has, um, you know, managed to climb the ladder in any vocation against the odds, they don't always turn around and hold their hand out to the next woman behind them. And that and and that story of the the is it Kirsten Dunst who uh, who plays the sort of go between between departments and actually says, yeah. okay, you can you can come and do your thing, but you know, just don't talk to anybody and you've got your own coffee pot and whatever it is. Well, separate uh, them all, yeah. Uh, and and that story is told very subtly. It's not, um, it's not hammered home. But as a woman watching, you know, you know immediately what that is. And yes, of course, it's to to do with their race, you know, the the skin color, I guess. But also, it feels a little bit like woman to woman. Well, I'm here. Why would I necessarily help you be here too? Because I've fought to be here, and I'm going to keep my fence posts high. Yeah. You know, there's that story, but it, but I think told very brilliantly. I think the script is brilliant because it's all, it's there in the script, but it's also in the way that they, again, the ensemble acting is just brilliant. Lovely, Cass, and the lovely sense of their home lives and, you know, all the stuff that they're um, sort of battling against. Theodore yeah. directed it. I don't know who wrote it. Yeah. And Alison Schroeder. Yeah. The brilliant actress who plays the character who puts together the computer when these two guys are flailing, who yes. was also in The Help. Was she in The Help? Gerard yeah. Henson. Yeah, who's just awesome. Uh, yeah, and Janelle Mon Monet is also in it. Who I actually, Janelle Monet is an actress, I think it's a very underrated actress. She's yeah. in the Glass Onion as well, and, and you know, we all know her as pop star, but I think she's a lovely actress, got an amazing presence. But I think you're right that it's very nice to attempt to make um, a new classic tradition. I think that the danger with Christmas is just watch the same films. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in fact, let's make hidden figures. A classic. It's just a, it's just a beautiful film because it has the feel good element. Feel good, inspiring. Yeah, and based on the true story. It's a true story and something that we really ought to think more about. And the and only other one I've got, which is a quickie uh, postscript on the end, is The Great Escape. Oh, uh, yes. Which is on Boxing Day, Channel Four, three thirty. Great Escape. 
I can't find yes. the Great Escape guy. I get too traumatized. Why do you love the, the Great Escape so much? Again, because it's a great ensemble piece, yeah. and also for the musical score. Yeah, yes. Yeah, and also it's it's a way to absolutely make Joe sit down on the sofa with me is to put a second World War movie on. <laughs> And otherwise he's up and down, come to you, come to you. And then he's listening to a podcast in the other room. Like, come and sit on the sofa. Is if I put the great escape on, he will absolutely be next to me, which is, you know, manipulative and terrible, but but it's a great movie. And Steve McQueen, who is Steve McQueen, Donald Pleasance. Yes. I'd watch anything with Donald Pleasance in. <laughs> just brilliant. And you know, just again, and it's always an interesting thing when um actors, what was the first film we talked about? You know, the people who who have done lots and lots of theatre and suddenly get a big part in a movie and you go, oh, my God, they're amazing. And 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 um, and I think that was true of Donald Pleasance, wasn't he? He was doing oh, loads of theatre at the time and then got great escape. And he also got Blofeld. I don't know. And yeah. I don't know which is first, actually. I, I, um, I didn't take so much to talk about Donald Pleasance. But they, yeah, you're right. Suddenly. And one of the big James Bond. Was that the James Bond? Oh, bad. Yeah. He he has the... Baddie, yeah. So that's um, yeah. I'm not even going to attempt to do that, but yes, okay. he does. And the Great Escape, he's he's wonderful in. And I I, I think um, you know, pulling to a close, that one of the great things about films is at Christmas, particularly because you've got time to sit and watch them, is that kind of familiarity with the actor and and uh, as well, and that sense of rediscovering actors that you love very much. And yeah. It's a bit like a, an Apple or a Spotify playlist. That yes. if you liked him in this, you might like him in that. And I always think there is a kind of virtuous circle of acting that that you people pull you along to different experiences. You know, if you if you have an interesting acting career, it it pulls you through all these different movies. And, yes. and Rickman, classic example, really, is in the sense that he he got that part in uh, Die Hard, I think, because of Dangerous Liaisons. Well, I, I know. So he'd been Valmont on, on um, Broadway in, in Christopher Hampton's absolutely brilliant Dangerous Liaisons, but hadn't yeah. done anything. And then there he is. He gets Die Hard. He does lovely Sense and Sensibility. He's the heel in Love Actually, which is another kind of classic Christmas watch. Yeah. Um, you know, he lends it sort of weight. He is Snape to a generation. Yes. Harry Potter. Although, of course, there's the, uh, Sherlock. Um, I'm not sure. Um, ah, uh, Robin Hood. And Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah. I know. I was watching something online the other day, and is I've obviously signed up for it, and can't remember when. But I keep being sent videos of Alan Rickman talking about acting or about his career, and they're just glorious. And there was one, and he was talking about the lines in Robin Hood where he's walking and he's like, uh, and he, I can't remember whether he's coming out of a bedroom yeah. and he's and he walks past and these two sort of floozy mistress characters appear from various bedrooms. And he says, you, 12.30, you, 12.45, and bring a friend. But then he was talking about the, where it came from and he'd had some sort of, there was a bit of a conflab about the writing. And he made a suggestion about, you know, the 12.30, 12.45. And then I think he said he read it to Ruby Wax or someone like Ruby Wax, who was a great, great friend. Yeah, yeah, who said, he said, is this funny? And he read it to her and he said, you 12.30, you 12.45. And she said, and bring a friend. And it's always a Ruby Wax line. And, but it's just brilliant. But then, and cancel Christmas. 
He's a great line. It is. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Because he'd sort of, he obviously got to a point where he, the director knew what he could do, that he could do all the sort of evil, baddie, big black hair, really, really um, amazingly scary mum. Who was it? Uh, Gwen, um, I can't remember. Brilliant stage actress who played the mum with the sort of, sort of milky eyes. Yeah. can't remember. Anyway, I have to look it up in the next pod. But, um, We'll come at you with that in the next part. We'll yeah, but uh, but uh, you know, again, incredibly theatrical performance, but it's sort of so true and bonkers that we that you go with it, and it was it's brilliant. Yeah, well, poor Kevin Costner barely getting a look in this. I know. I... <laughs> Definitely in that one, the baddie has all the best lines. Yeah, I mean, I'm now going to watch even more films over Christmas than I thought I was going to do. Yeah. So very nice way, I think. <laughs> I mean, cancel Christmas. Yeah. Uh, to, to end this uh, podcast. And um, if you've enjoyed it, then um, do subscribe and do keep listening. We've got lots of plans for the new year and we'll be here. Um, and in the meantime, it's goodbye from us. From me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. And goodbye from me, Sarah Crompton, the critic. Happy Christmas.